So uh, it's a great pleasure to be going through the book of Judges. I'm excited to know that we're digging into God's revealed word to us, so it's always, it's always good to be um, in the word. And so again, it's a great privilege to do this together. So with that said, um, let's jump right into today's passage. Uh, last week we ended chapter 3, and today we'll begin from the top of chapter 4, so Judges 4. If you have your Bibles, just... Go to Judges 4, and we'll start from the beginning. I'll go ahead and read it. Judges 4.1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Ibnom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Nephtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Habab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Ibnoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord rooted Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor. 
and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened the skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Hever, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. I'm sorry, until, yeah, until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. Excuse me, weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Uh, these verses are getting more <laughs> gory and graphic as, as they go. But... Um, if you have your handout, uh, you'll see I divided this whole passage into two key points that I believe summarizes the whole uh, theme of the, of the story. Point number one you'll see on the paper is the road to Israel's victory. And point number two is God's providence in Israel's victory. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and discuss point number one. Now we begin this new story with Israel, once again, held captive under the enemy nation, Right? Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, ruled over Israel. And this was, again, this was God's way of bringing discipline to his people because we see in verse 1 that, again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? That's what it shows in verse 1. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord now that Ehud, their previous ruler, had died. And I just find it interesting that this theme of Israel's disobedience is so repetitive through the book of Judges. And it seems to happen right after each judge passes away, right? We see this in chapter 3 with Othniel, who, he, he, was a, he was a ruler, a judge, who dies, right? And therefore Israel go back, goes back to doing evil again. So every time a ruler, a judge would die, Israel would just go back to, to, to doing, doing evil against the Lord. We see the same thing happen in chapter 2 with the death of Joshua. Um, so, you know, Joshua would die, then and the Israelites would go back to doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So I think this speaks a lot about the human condition. Because Israel's, because of sin, Israel's sinful inclination, the judges are raised up for their benefit. Uh, Israel, in other words, Israel cannot be left alone uh, without a ruler. It seems as if God graciously gives Israel... And all, kind, all mankind, for that matter, a, a way to restrain themselves from acting out their sinful tendencies to their own destruction. These judges were sent by God to keep them from living in disobedience to God, which in turn served for their own good and for peace of the nation of Israel. I'm choking over here with this. Let me loosen up. When we think about our nation, okay, think about our nation now, as bad as things may seem... 
uh, in our day, we ought to still give thanks to God for the way in which God has providentially protected us through the means of civil law and order. We We obviously know that today's laws aren't perfect, but God has allowed certain powers to be in place as a means of restraining evil to some degree. And this is what's going on with Israel. God is allowing these, God is raising up these rulers, these judges, to restrain the evil in, in Israel, right? Here's, a, here's an example of what it means for God to allow ruling authorities to, to cover a, a nation. Let's look at Romans 13, 1 through 7. Can someone read that? You can see it. Keep going. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Yeah, so this gives us a good idea of how God places governing authorities over people for the sake of rest in a nation. Okay? And this is, again, this is the reason why God would raise up judges so that order was brought into the nation. But it was a specific kind of order. Obviously, it wasn't just... Um, you know, God raising up someone and bringing about uh, political, uh, their own political methods on how to uh, rule over a nation. This was a nation that was ruled by God, judged by God through, through God's laws. Uh, but let me continue. It says, but we will see that even through the scriptures, the scriptures would say that there would be rest during the time the judges ruled, but it was only a rest for the land and not an ultimate rest for the people. So even though the judges were raised and brought rest upon the nation, we, we saw that the moment the judge would leave, the nation would go back to idolatry. And so it was obviously an ultimate rest deeper that was not happening, an ultimate um, problem that was not being solved within the people themselves. Uh, in Judges 3, we read, and, and, and I'm going to show you a couple of verses. Judges 3.11, it says, So the land had rest for 40 years. But look what it says afterwards. Then Othniel, the son of Kinez, died. Right? So the ruler at the time, so the, again, they, they had rest for 40 years, the ruler dies, and when, we, when, when you continue to read that passage, it says that uh, the, the people of Israel went back to uh, sinning against the Lord, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at Judges 3.30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hands of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Okay, so the judge that God brings up, he rescues them, and he rules over them. And in this case, um, he ruled over them for 80 years. Then right after that, he dies, and the nation goes back to their idolatry. Then Judges 5.31 says, So... Uh, may all your enemies perish, O Lord, 
O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. So this is moving on to the next chapter. But again, this is saying the same thing. Israel was in this repetitive cycle that uh, every time God would raise a judge for them, they would be good for a couple of years. Then uh, once that person died, they went back to their, their idolatry. So there was, there was rest when the judges of God ruled over the land until, of course, he would pass away. Israel had a, what is called a pressurized piety, right? Israel would serve the Lord while under God's judges, but then he, they had the tendency to go back to their old habits of sin and idolatry after the judge would pass away. And this ought to say something about the sinfulness of man. It, it reminds me, actually, of uh, when I was in public school during um, elementary and, and, and the high school period. Uh, I remember as a student that occasionally the teacher had to step out of the classroom, maybe to use a restroom or to speak to a superintendent or something. Um, and uh, in, hi in hindsight, I still remember, in fact, I, I find it amazing that the teacher would even risk uh, leaving the classroom, but um, <laughs> I, I just remember that, that being something that the teacher would do. Uh, so the teacher would step out of the classroom for maybe one minute, not even, a couple of seconds. And the moment she left that door, um, the classroom would burst and start screaming and everyone would start getting up on their chairs and joking around. Um, students would scream and shout out loud. Some students would jump out of their seats and run around insanely. Uh, sometimes in that one minute of the teacher stepping out of the classroom, there would be a fight between students uh, and someone would get hurt. And it almost seems that when humans have no restrictions, right, and are left to themselves, their true nature comes out, like the, stu like the students who were left with no teacher. And this is, the case, this is the same thing going on with Israel. The moment that their ruler left, uh, they passed away, their true nature comes out, uh, and they did as, as they pleased. And, and again, as they pleased was, was always, and it happened to always be, sinning against the Lord. Uh, you don't... Uh, I always say this, you don't have to teach a child how to be bad. They, they do it automatically. You, you sort of have to, you know, train them up to be good. Um, and it's the same thing going on with uh, Israel. And that shows uh, something about the nature of man. Now, a couple of things I want you to think about. Um, what, would, what would you look like? Think about yourself. What would you like, look like in a world with no restrictions or no penalties? Because all of us, every day as you live your lives are restricted in many different ways, right? When you drive, you're restricted with the laws of the road. When you walk in the street, you're restricted with the laws of the land. Um, when you're in a building, there's rules to um, how you are to behave in certain buildings. And think about all the restrictions that are placed on you as you live your life and um, do what you do on a normal basis. You may not think about these things, but you are restricted in so many different ways. So what would you look like, look like in a world without these restrictions? So just think for a moment, all these things just disappear. No laws against murder, okay? How many of you would have killed somebody already? I know I probably would have. Um, no laws against sexual offenses, okay? No speeding tickets or penalties against certain driving methods. No fines against crimes. Think about that. Now, before you start thinking, oh, that would be a horrible place to live, no, think about yourself. 
What, uh, would you be trusted in a world without restrictions? Don't worry about everyone else. Think about yourself. Can you be trusted to live holy without these things? How about certain cultural shames? Things that our culture um, shames. Things that are taboo in our culture. I know, I was going to say, there's not, that's kind of going away, actually. But, but yeah, you know, even, even the pressures of family and things like that, like, all, imagine all that disappearing, you um, making decisions yourself, doing things on your own without these kind of, extri- uh, these pressures from the outside. Uh, what would you look like in, in a society with no cultural pressures from others that, that work to keep you from doing the things that are shameful? Uh, if it weren't taboo, would you fall into shameful things? You don't have to answer that publicly, but we see that God has used the authorities for the good of a society and it's it's restraint against evil. Um, And like our brother said, some of this stuff is kind of going away as the world and even the rulers of this age are just falling away from the law of God. Uh, Romans 13.3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Going back to the main text, though, we see that Israel once again disobeys the Lord after their ruler dies, most likely in idolatry and sin and following the surrounding culture of Canaan. And so God places them under the rule of a Canaan nation. The commander of the army against Israel went by the name of Sisera. You'll see that in the beginning of the passage. Uh, and actually many commentators say that, um, that Sisera was not even a Canaanite, actually, uh, just judging by his name, just uh, doing research on the name Sisera. Uh, so he was, he was said to be an outsider. Uh, he was made a commander working for the king of Canaan. So he could have been hired for the service of, of the Canaan army. And so with that, with that in mind, one would only imagine that Sisera, this ruler, um, this commander, was a vicious man, commanding his killings as one who isn't personally connected to his subjects or even going to war with a, des- with a desire to serve his nation. He was just sort of hired to be uh, uh, a commander in this uh, army against Israel. So again, he was an outsider who was hired and was possibly more concerned with his pay than he is to represent his nation. And we see that he was brutal, right, against Israel. In verse 3, um, it says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And so we read here that he had 900 chariots of iron. This was a big deal. Um, They were obviously advanced in their technology for warfare. It uh, It was like when the tanks were invented in the First World War. Like trenches ceased to be relevant. These chariots were probably two wheeled, right? Uh, opened behind, carrying a driver, a warrior, and a shield bearer. So these chariots were a problem for Israel. And we, we saw this in chapter 1, actually, in, 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 uh, in a few chapters back, where Israel was unable to drive out those in the plain because they had chariots of iron. And so that's a reference of these, these people here. The historian Josephus credits the Canaanite army with 3,000 chariots, 10,000 horsemen, 300,000 footmen, which included the chariots of iron. And so because of this kind of power that this enemy nation had, 
verse 3 says that Sisera oppressed the people of Israel, not in a common way, but the verse says that they, the, the oppression was done cruelly, and it was done for 20 years straight. Now this oppression ends in the same manner as all of Israel's past sufferings. If you recall, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt in Exodus 2, 23, it says, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And again, we see the same thing happening. Uh, back in our main text, verse 3, says that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Okay, they were suffering under this uh, oppression. And what has God always been doing every time they would cry out to the Lord? He graciously rescues them um, by raising up a judge, right, to save them. Let's look at how God to do, decided to do this um, this time. It's a little bit different than normal, but let's look at uh, verses 4 through 9. Can someone read this? So here we have this character, Deborah, who at the time took up the position as judge of Israel. Okay, so she became the next judge. By the way, I don't want you to miss what the role of judge was, because we've been saying judge, and we've been speaking about these judges, but I want to talk a little bit about what their role was. What exactly did they do? Um, here's a good description. Uh, in Exodus 18, 13 through 6, um, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, the next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them known the statutes of God and his, and his laws. Okay, So here we saw what might be an early form of a God-ruled government. This was led by God's law and the judge would lead the people of Israel by it. Uh, and if you continue to read in Exodus, I don't have it up here on the, uh, on the projection, but if you continue to read it, you'll see that this was too much for one person to handle, and so Moses' father-in-law gives him advice on how to spread the load of work. But regardless, the role of judge was to lead over Israel under the rule of Yahweh, right? Under the rule of God. And as we've seen through judges, this is what brought rest into the land, right? At least until the judge died. So it wasn't nothing special about the judge himself, but the judge would come and, and, and communicate 
and bring forth uh, the law of God to the people. He would counsel them. He would lead them. He would rule over them in such a way that uh, they would submit to the rule of God. And, and that is what brought peace in the land. And so, again, uh, back in our main text, we see so that. Yeah, I, go for it. Can I kind of make an observation, ask a question, sure. sort of? So, like, in, when, when you read this in, in Exodus 17, like the passage right next, mm -hmm. um, basically, this is sort of like 2 Timothy 2 2. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't get anything in Judges where, and maybe that's your point, yeah. is that, you know, they weren't, they weren't really teaching people how to, quote, you know, think, think scripturally for themselves. Correct. You know, they were just like, um, you know, you guys don't think we'll tell you how to live, we'll tell you what you should have done. It's almost like a legalistic thing because people don't have it in their hearts. Absolutely. Yeah, actually, that, that, that does make my point. And, and you see that being evident through the history of Israel as, as it continued to fail. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and you make the point, and I'll just sort of re repeat it. Um, the, I don't want to say the inability, but the, um, the failure of the people of Israel in um, keeping the law of God for themselves, being able to manage themselves with what God has revealed in his law, um, it shows the need for this judge to come in and sort of, you know, help them and guide them to do this. Um, ulti ultimately, we see that, that that wasn't sufficient, like you, like you said. Um, it, it's not until we see in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit writes these things in the heart of man so that uh, they can be governed by God's law, you know, on their own. Now, e even still, because of sin, even in the New Testament, we're still in need to be under shepherds, Right? Uh, under leaders that would help us to, to do this. But what you, you're right. You see the insufficiency of it because uh, the people still depended on another person. If not, they would flee to idolatry. Um, and so this was the failure of Israel. They kept, they kept falling in that way. Let me get them. Yeah. That raises an additional point. Yeah. And there's several other things going on here. First of all, Deborah should, just because of the, the patriarchy of the society, mm -hmm. should never have been cause to step into the judge position. Correct, yes. Um, Barak mm -hmm. is a Kenite. Right. The Kenite clan came from Moses' father-in-law. Father-in-law, yeah. And they were actually from Esau's family. Right. So they were technically out of the chosen ones as well. But Correct. The point is, God uses whatever means possible to yeah. achieve his Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of those questions, like when we see her raising up and becoming a judge, you say, well, how did this happen? Um, but you're right. In this specific situation, God pulls these people and uses them, obviously for his, his bigger purposes, though. But. Especially when the chosen ones are not following his will. Yeah. So, you know, applying it today, I yeah. wonder what God is doing as the chosen ones are not following his will. Right. <laughs> Amen. <coughs> Additional clarification might be that the Hebrew word for judge hmm. really means deliverer or savior. Hmm. So the judges that we know as judges were ones who were respected leaders hmm. who delivered them for a time Amen. from the hand of their enemies. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Very good. And you see that um, this happening throughout the whole book of Judges these judges being raised up and delivering them from the hands of the enemy. 
So uh, let me go ahead and continue. Uh, regardless, of, regardless, the role of the judge was to lead over Israel under the rule of Yahweh, uh, to deliver them from the hands of the enemy. And as we've seen through judges, this is what brought rest to the land, at least until the judge died. And so back, back to our main text. We see that Deborah was the judge of Israel at the time. But what made her unique was that the scripture describes her as a prophetess, right? And a prophetess was one who spoke on behalf of God. This is similar to what we see with uh, Moses and Aaron in Exodus 4. Um, Exodus 4, 15, 16 says, You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. And so, uh, oh, and then it goes on, he says, he shall, speak to, uh, he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And so in this case, or in this, in this example, Aaron was Moses' prophet, and we see that a prophet would essentially be speaking on behalf of God, and that's what we see Deborah do, right? Um, now, keep in mind that Deborah was a judge during this time when Israel was still in bondage under an enemy nation. So she doesn't exactly deliver them, right? It shows sort of a difference in some of the other judges. She, she doesn't exactly deliver them. She was a, a judge during the time while they were still under the enemy nation. She's not seen as a judge who, like the other judges in Israel, conquer over the enemy herself, right? But rather we see that she commissions another to do the task. Uh, Deborah calls on a name, uh, he calls on a man by the name of Barak. Uh, and this is where we see her uh, prophesy God's message to him. Look at uh, verse 6 through 7, starting at 6b. It says, has not the Lord, this is the message from God that he, she brings to Barak. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So through Deborah's message, we see that God is calling Barak for the job. Now what's interesting is Barak's response. Uh, at first, any, anyone would seem hesitant to take on this task. Right, being that Sisera and his army were very strong, um, it, it almost seemed like a suicide mission. Uh, but this time it was it was different. It was it was the Lord Himself who spoke through the prophet through the prophetess Deborah. And and what she was saying to him guaranteed victory. Right, this is God speaking through Deborah, uh, bringing upon this message to Barak. Um, and it couldn't be any more guaranteed since it came from God himself. So, of course, Barak agrees to the task, but look how he responds uh, in verse 8. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, it, it seems like a humorous kind of response or even a cowardly response. Like, look, I won't go unless you come with me. Um, and, and not to be sexist or anything, but... Here we have a man who's saying to a woman, I only go if you come, you know, I only go with, if, if you come with me. Um, but in, in reality, the, in, in this context, it wasn't a humorous response and it wasn't a cowardly response. This was a response that showed true dependency on God. Barak knew 
that Deborah was a prophet of the Almighty God. And if God's presence was with Deborah, then Barak wanted to make sure that God's presence would follow him as well. Uh, and, and so as he went into this war, he wanted to make sure that the Lord was with him. Okay, that's how it ought to be read. Now let's read how she responds. Uh, verse 9. Someone read that. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Yeah, so here we see that Deborah agrees to go. But what's interesting is what she says about the task at hand. She basically tells Barak that even though you're guaranteed victory over the enemy, it will not lead to your glory. Now, as a man heading his army against an enemy nation, this would have been great for Barak's reputation. What a glorious moment he would have had as he gained victory over such an army as Sisera's. Yet, Deborah says to him that God will give this victory into the hands of a woman. Interesting. Now, this is the kind of moment, at least for me as a, as a boy, this is like getting picked on at school and your uh, big sister comes and, and beats up the bullies for you. Uh, it's a victory, but, but with no glory, right? Uh, <laughs> you don't know whether to be happy or embarrassed, but um, this is the way that the Lord works, Right? And, and it, it, it's often that way in ministry. Uh, many, many people love the glorious aspects of Christian ministry, but wouldn't be content with others getting the glory. So serving God ought to be satisfying to us, even if we never get the glory, right? As long as God's will is being done, we should be happy whether we get recognized or another person gets recognized. It should be solely Deo Gloria, right? Glory to God alone. And so that's what we see here. Um, she's telling him, you're going to win, but uh, the glory is going to go uh, in the hands of, of a woman. Now, point number two on the sheet is God's providence in Israel's victory. Okay, and I'm going to talk about that. As we read on in the story, uh, and we're just going to look on at the rest of the passages, I hope you start to notice God's provident, providential work uh, in the victory of Israel and how he sort of orchestrates things in his sovereignty. Uh, let's look at Judges 4, 9b, all the way through 17, actually. I'll read it. It says, Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Nephtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Habab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaninim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera, no, okay. When Sisera told that Barak, the son of, it, of Abinoam, had gone up to, the Mount, to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoim, to the river of Kishon. Uh, and Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from, the, from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. 
and the Lord rooted Sisera and all his chariots and his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Hirosheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazer, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So in this part, we see the war begin, right? And Barak gathers his allies along with Deborah, and they begin war. And in the midst of the war, Deborah confirms a victory for Israel, saying, in this day, the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. And so now I want to mention something that has stood out, that, that, that sort of shows God's working um, in, you know, providentially in the victory of Israel. We see in verse 11 that a man named Heber, who was a Kenite, decided to separate from the Kenites, and him and his wife pitched a tent far away. And this happens to be the direction that Sisera runs to when he sees that the people are losing the war, right? He, he, he escapes. And uh, Sisera also recalled that his king, Jabin, whom he works for, had peace with the Herber household. And so it was the place to go, right, for him as he ran away from the war. Let's read what happens next. Someone read that. So, so <clears throat> first, we, we have to recognize God's sovereignty and how he providentially brings about victory for Israel. Sisera flees on foot into the tent of the Heber household and is welcomed by the wife of Heber, and she welcomes him and covers him with a rug. And it's interesting how she comes across as such a sweetheart, right, uh, with a nourishing form of hospitality. Now in uh, verse 19, Sisera, it's interesting, Sisera asks for water, and instead of water, the verse says that she gives him milk and covers him. <laughs> Many commentaries try to understand what to make of that. Why would she give him milk instead of the water that he requested? Commentators say that the milk would have been a way to induce sleep on him, maybe, like giving a milk to a baby. Uh, others say that the milk was like a sign of nurturing, so at this point, Mr. Sisera was handed milk and was tucked in like a baby. Um, but we see that uh, this was a setup, right? This was a setup. Verse 21 says, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg. You guys know what a tent peg is, right? Okay. Just making sure. And took a hammer in, her, in, her, in his hand. I'm sorry, in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into, the, into his temple, which is up here. 
until, until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, and he died. So she killed him with a tent peg in his temple. Uh, this, is, this was not normal hospitality for the Kenites. Uh, people didn't normally invite you to nurture you and then kill you in your sleep. But, uh, well, so yeah. the only tool you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, yeah, this is what she did. And it was this that brought victory into the hands of Israel once again. Uh, and through this account, we see that as unusual as that may have seen, it may have been seen as, you, as we read this story, it was in God's providence that it ended this way, fulfilling what God had said he would do for Barak by promising victory for Israel in this war through the means of a woman. And I want to conclude with these last couple of verses, Judges 4, 22 to 24. It says, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you're seeking, which was a dead Sisera. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. So again we read that on that day God subdued Jabin, Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. Israel achieved victory over their enemy nation. Now as we've discussed before, many of these victories may seem very gruesome. And at times it's, it's hard to see these violent events as victories. But this is because we're reading a detailed description of war, right? If someone tells you war stories, you're going to be like, wow, you're a sinner. But um, this was war. And in this war, we see as we, as we continue on, God has used both the wicked nations and the Israelites to accomplish his purposes. And like Pastor Ron rightly said last week, many things are descriptive and not prescriptive. In other words, uh, these are descriptions of historical events, but we're not intended to prescribe on how we ought to live. So don't go around, you know, putting pegs in people's heads. However, we do see that the scriptures communicate these events as victory for Israel. Okay? And this is how we ought to receive it as well. God did what he promised he would do by saving Israel once again. And that's victory in and of itself. And God is faithful in his salvation. And we see that through these events. Uh, that concludes Judges 4. Uh, next, week, next week, Ron will continue with chapter 5. But any questions or comments? Oh, we have one. Yes. You know, this whole thing, all of chapter 4, yeah. is a, a work of salvation. Amen. The, first, the beginning verses talk about the need for salvation. Yes. So you've got the need for salvation. Right. And then you've got the source, because it's through the prophetess that we know that God calls this whole thing into being. Right. So there's the source of salvation. Right. And then you think about the minutia of what's going on here, how this Hebrew, this Hebrew the Kenite, right. moved away from this tribe to exactly the right position yeah. that Sisera would be running to, and she'd be right there. Right. It's crazy. And then, you know, you've made the point at the end of how we should see these acts of war or this violence. Right. And this is the problem of salvation. Mm -hmm. Because when you think about, like David's lineage, his multiple wives, his form right. of Bathsheba, the kings of not only Israel, but the kings of Judah and the sin, but still, through all that garbage, right. through all that stuff, right. 
became a savior. Yeah, amen, amen. Yeah, that's very good. It makes me think of uh, my own personal testimony, uh, or maybe some of us here. Like, it wasn't a clean conversion. Um, you know, God put things from all directions um, to save me, and it was a lot messier than, you know, yeah. what we would like it to be like. But, yeah, amen. Well, that, that's enough time. I mean, that's all the time we have left. So uh, no questions, y'all. But let me go ahead and pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this passage today. Um, this is your holy and infallible word. Uh, you've shown us in this historical account of Israel's fall and your mention of saving them from the hands of Jabin's general and the means in which you accomplish this task. Uh, Lord, in this passage, we've seen your wisdom on how you orchestrate these events to happen as they fulfill what you've already planned before the foundation of the world. And so we are left with saying what it says in Psalm 96, 4, uh, great is the Lord and, and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. And as sinners ourselves, Lord, we thank you for reminding us of who you are through your word this morning. Uh, may we always be reminded. Thank you for this passage, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.